New York's gun carry law faces another setback in federal court. Plus, Cam Edwards of Bearing Arms on the impact of the election on gun policy. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter today if you want to keep up to date on the latest in guns in America. And you can also buy a membership if you want to go a bit more in depth and get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis that will really help you stay informed about what's happening across the country with gun politics. But this week, we have an election to talk about. We have sort of the results. We have most of the results in. And I'm bringing back on Cam Edwards from Bearing Arms, one of my favorite guests, uh, who was on to talk about what we should look for ahead of the election, and now is back to tell us what we've seen out of the election. How are you doing today, Cam? I'm good, Stephen. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm still waiting on on Arizona and Nevada and Oregon to get their acts together and let us know who won these races. Happens every every election with these some of these states. They should maybe uh, I don't know send some people to Florida and figure out how to count votes a little faster. Right. Um, but uh, but we do have some. We do have the the bulk of the major results in and. Um, there's probably a few things we can take from them. Uh, what? Why don't you? Why don't we start with just the top line? What was your big takeaway from Tuesday's elections? From from the results we've seen? You know, I, I thought it was a better night for uh, gun owners than for the GOP uh, more generally. Um, both from how some of these races turned out, and then just you know where we're going to stand. I think uh, after all of the other races have been called. Um, you know, the, the, the red wave was there, but it wasn't equally applied in every state. Mm. Uh, I remember before the last time I was on, I remember you and I talking about New York and trying to, you know, I, 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 I think you or I, maybe both of us, uh, sort of compared New York to Virginia uh, last year and, mm. you know, wondered, okay, well, would there be enough of a red wave to, you know, unseat Kathy Hochul? I mean, look, New York's uh, a lot bluer than Virginia is. And so the yeah. answer was no. But in a state where Andrew Cuomo won by 22 points four years ago, Kathy Hochul is going to win by like six. So, there, were, you know, we, we've saw, uh, I think, three Democrats from New York's congressional delegation were defeated. Um, you know, so we did see some down ticket, uh, I think, uh, wins for, uh, for gun owners. And again, a lot of those places, a lot of those districts were upstate New York, Long Island. Uh, places where, sure. you know, uh, I think you've got a lot of people who are really ticked off about uh, the Concealed Carry Improvement Act, quote unquote, uh, in the attempt to go after their right to keep and bear arms. I don't think it was the only issue, obviously, but I think it was an issue that yeah. that hurt Hochul in New York. Um, I, yeah. You know, and, and well, let's just go over the top lines real quick. Right? Yeah. What we know now, because uh, right? because uh, I do want to get into some of the like. How do we judge these outcomes based off what the expectations were? Because I think that's a really important extra step you got to take when you're looking at election results, right? Like you're talking about here with with Hochul. But but first off, it seems this hasn't been called yet as of Friday when we're talking about this. But uh, it seems very likely that Republicans will take control of the House, mm-hmm. but not by a very wide margin. Um, and it's uh, it's now with 
with the call in the Arizona Senate race, it's clear that Republicans will not take control of the Senate. They could still get to 50, another 50-50 split, depending on how Nevada and uh, goes and, and the Georgia runoff ends up. But but they won't have control of that that body. Uh, and then you you had uh, you know a number of these key races that we talked about before the election. So New York obviously got Hochul held on to win, but only by a thin margin. You had Beto uh, lose tremendous, you know, by eleven points mm-hmm. in Texas to Abbott, and then you had uh, Kemp defeat Abrams again, but by I think he was that was about nine points in Georgia, which is. Uh, significant as well because Georgia is more of a purple state. You know, there's two Democratic senators and the the Democrat running for re-election right now is ahead of the Republican, you know, Warnock's ahead of Walker, even though they're going to run off. Um, so that's perhaps the most impressive win of those three, would you say? Yeah, I think so. Um, although I think they were all, you know, impressive because of the margins that we saw. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is something that uh, I think you and I both talked about in our post-election analysis is that, you know, Democrats ran this message that constitutional carry was extreme, right? They, they, I mean, it was, that was sort of one of their issues along with abortion was constitutional carry in these states. Um, and I think what we saw is that constitutional carry is, is not nearly as controversial as the gun control lobby would like it to be because hmm. uh, what was it? Nine governors who signed constitutional carry into law were on the ballot on Tuesday and they and, all won, right? And they all won. And I don't even think it was close. I think I think Kemp's race might have been the closest. Um, yeah, because Abbott then, and Kemp both signed it as well. <laughs> right. And, and so, you know, I, th- this was supposed to be the election cycle, uh, according to Peter Ambler of Giffords, where uh, Democrats, sh- you know, showed that they could win on on gun control. And I, don't, I just don't think that that's the case. Um, because, again, when you look at, first of all, what issues were most important to voters, uh, gun control was behind, you know, inflation. Uh, it was behind uh, abortion. It was tied, I believe, with crime. Uh, and and you know, not everybody who thinks about or considers gun policy to be their most important issue is going to side with gun control, right? There, there, there are yeah. going to be a lot of you know Second Amendment supporters who say this is my number one issue, but that's not a vote for an anti-gun agenda. And I'm, you know, I'm looking around. I mean, look, we can talk about Colorado three with Lauren Boebert. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to find that, that race or campaign that says that, that allows the gun control lobby to say, you know, aha, look, this proves that, uh, you know, we've got a winning message and Americans, uh, side with us. I don't think that's what this midterm showed. Um, but as you pointed out in, in your commentary, I don't think that this was a resounding enough election night for segment advocates that it's really going to cause Democrats to reevaluate the relationship with the gun control lobby. I think it's still going to be full steam ahead going forward. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably a good overall takeaway, right? You, you've got, you have what are generally bad results for Republicans when you're thinking about the expectations, right? We, we can talk maybe later about some of the practical implications of the election because that's important too. But when you're looking at just the political implications of it, um, retaking the House is was expected, and Republicans, it seems, have managed to do that. But what was ex- what was also expected expected is that they would do it by a pretty wide margin, and that's that hasn't come to pass. And it was 
there were a lot of people thinking they might get 53 or 54 even uh, seats in the Senate. And mm-hmm. they they might not even get back to 50 at this point, uh, you know, with, with how the election actually turned out. It, they're going to be lucky to get back to 50. Uh, so and it'll take another runoff in Georgia for them to, to do that. And this time they'd have to win that runoff. But uh so and and you look at the NRA spending versus the gun control group spending, and right now it sure it sure seems. I mean, the NRA's goal uh, seemed to absolutely be taking control of the Senate. They spent a lot of their money, the the vast majority of their money, in six you know those six key battleground races in the Senate, and it looks like they're going to come out with a losing record in those battles. Uh, they, they want this, they won in Wisconsin, they won in North Carolina, but those are two holds. First of all, it's not a pickup. Right. Uh, but they lost in Pennsylvania where they were spending a lot of money. They lost in Arizona where they're spending a lot of money. They lost in, well, Georgia's going to a runoff with their, with the Democrat ahead in the vote, uh, the initial vote. And then uh, Nevada is still a toss up at this point. We don't, uh, I think Laxlet is leading by a very thin margin and we don't, nobody has called that race yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could still go either way. But uh, so, you know, that that's a bad night for Republicans. And because the issue has become very polarized among the political parties, that equals a, a bad night for the NRA and, and gun rights advocates generally. But when you zoom into the races where this was an actual top issue, you see a different picture, right? That's is that fair? Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. And and I don't know how many people beyond uh, NRA or every town employees actually, you know, are going to remember who endorsed one mm-hmm. candidate and who had the winning record. But mm-hmm. I, I also think, you know, of of all of those candidates that you just talked about, and all those races where the NRA spent in Pennsylvania and in Georgia and in Arizona. Um, you know, one of the big issues was candidate quality, right? Mm, yeah. And and in every one of those states in the Republican primary, there were candidates on the ballot who were just as strong in the Second Amendment, who I think would have been stronger in the general election. Um, and a lot of these candidates were the candidates that Democrats spent money trying to promote. Uh, you know, they, they knew that these were going to be the weaker candidates uh, in the general election. And unfortunately, they were right. So, I don't know um, that this says as much about, uh, you know, the NRA's uh, diminished power or, uh, you know, a, a changing of the attitudes in uh, in, in these states uh, in terms of our right to keep and bear arms. Um, as you say, guns weren't the primary issue in, in any of these races in Arizona. Mark Kelly didn't want to. I don't think he brought up gun control once, which is amazing. Uh, given that, you know, he co-founded yeah. Giffords with his wife. Right. But I mean, he did not want that to be an issue. Um, I, I wonder if Blake Masters would have uh, performed better had he tried to make it more of an issue as he did in the primary. But uh, I don't know. Um, I, I, I think, though, what this really shows, I, you know, when you look at the Senate, especially, um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we are going to take the House and we'll have that firewall. But again, I don't think that anything really changes here. I think the gun control lobby is going to be able to point to those races that, that you just did. And they're going to be able to say, look, this does show uh, that there are changing attitudes in these red states and it doesn't hurt you to run on gun control. Um, the question is, though, if you've got a divided Congress, 
does that really matter, at least for the next two years? Uh, yeah. or, or will, you know, the gun control lobby instead be looking more at the executive branch for uh, trying to enact their agenda? But, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that you could. I think we're roughly a 50 50 country when it comes to the issue of gun control. And I think this was roughly a 50 50 election. Um, although I still think that there are signs that, uh, that 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 opposition to gun control uh, is becoming perhaps a, a more bipartisan uh, issue than uh, anti-gun activists would like. Yeah, let's talk about some of the signs of that real quick, because I think, uh, as we discussed in our previous podcast, in our pre-election podcast, the ballot initiatives are probably the easiest ones to read as far as what they mean for how Americans feel about gun politics, or at least how uh, Oregonians and Iowans feel about <laughs> gun control, right? right. Um, because that's those are the two states that had initiatives. But you had the Iowa pro-gun initiative where they added uh, the right to keep and bear arms to their state constitution, and they declared it an individual right, and they said that judges would have to use strict scrutiny anytime they consider a gun case moving forward. Uh, you know, that, that initiative got... Uh, what 65% of the vote. Uh, it ran well ahead of both the Republican governor who won and uh, the longtime Republican Senator Grassley, Chuck Grassley, who, who won as well, won re-election as well. So that implies that a lot of Democrats in the state crossed over to vote for that ballot initiative. And the Oregon initiative, which has not been called yet and and um, is, I don't know, it, we don't want to speculate too much on where it's, what's going. Maybe, maybe it will pass, but the margin right now, I believe, is 50.9% for and 49.1% against. So it's mm -hmm. obviously extremely tight. Um, and you still see, if you look at the raw numbers right now, that... Uh, the same effect happened there. You had more people vote for vote um, for the Democratic senator who was up for re-election than voted for the ballot initiative. Uh, and the governor's race there was a little weird because it was a three-way race with a Democrat turned independent who took like 10% of the vote. Um, and so if you combine the two Democrats, basically, they got more votes than the ballot initiative got. Um, although the the Democrat who won got fewer votes, but she didn't have to get to 50 percent to win because of the, the split race. Uh, so, you know, again, I think you're, what you see there is that uh, there must have been a significant number of Democrats who crossed over to vote against that initiative, which puts in place a permit to purchase requirement and confiscation of magazines that hold more than 10 rounds and and a few other things. Um, so. There appears to have been in these ballot initiatives significant crossover votes uh, for the pro-gun position in these races. Yeah, and I want to I want to start with Oregon um, because to me that's the more interesting of the two. Like hey, we we expected the Iowa uh, amendment to pass. I don't think we. I I I thought it'd be closer to twenty points than thirty points, but. Um, I think Oregon is one of the great what ifs of this cycle. Um, what if gun owners have been able to put as much money uh, into a uh, public uh, opinion campaign against Measure 114 as supporters were able to put into 
uh, you know, their spending. Um, gun owners were outspent by about two, uh, 10 to 1 uh, in this race. And as uh, I wrote a story about this for Bearing Arms, the top five, the, the top five donors uh, in favor of the ballot measure were all from out of state. They were either gun control groups or they were, you know, wealthy mm-hmm. uh, anti-gun philanthropists from the Seattle area. Um, so there was a lot of out-of-state money funding this gun control initiative. And and there were Democrats in Oregon who voted against Measure 114. Um, and they weren't just rural Democrats. You know, there there were some Portlandites, Portlandiers, I guess, uh, who, who voted against this measure. And I, I just, again, I can't help but wonder, like, what would have happened if we had been able to spend a couple of million dollars in Portland, uh, you know, in these suburbs targeting liberals and pointing out, you know, uh, the disparate harm that's going to uh, be caused by this magazine ban. Uh, the the you know, do they do you really want to put a new nonviolent, uh, you know, criminal offense on the books when you guys have been when or I would have put it when we, you know, have been advocating for criminal justice reform for the last two years. This takes us away from where we've been uh, wanting to go. Um, if there had been that sort of sustained campaign that could have brought down support in Portland from, let's say, 75 percent to 70 percent or 66 percent, we might be looking at the defeat of Measure 114. And, you know, one of the lessons that I think Second Amendment advocates need to take going forward is that the 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 pro gun left might be small, but they're there. Uh, and when you see these types of anti-gun initiatives run in states like Oregon, we need to figure out a way, I think, to to work together. Uh, and in some cases, we might just need to figure out a way to support our, uh, you know, uh, liberal gun owning friends uh, financially or otherwise to help them get the message out to their communities. Because in this, you know, politically tribal time, I don't know that a liberal gun owner is really going to listen even to me. Right. But they might listen to another progressive gun owner. So um, if we can, I think if we can start to bolster the the pro gun owning Democrat or the pro gun owning liberal, uh, I think that's going to be a huge benefit uh, to gun owners you know, all across the country. And I think what we saw with Measure 114 in Oregon shows that we really do need to take that that section of uh, of American gun ownership seriously as a political uh, component as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation as part of the takeaway here. I would also say that even if we assume that this is going to hold on and pass by, you know, 1%, to 1.5%, 2%, whatever it ends up being, it's a very small margin in a state like Oregon, which is very deep blue. Uh, I think that says a lot in and of itself. I mean, it's, it probably means you're not going to see this sort of effort made in any other state that's even slightly less blue than Oregon. Uh, and there there aren't a lot of states that are more blue than Oregon. So uh, I think that's that's one significant takeaway. I, I also want to talk about uh, maybe we get into some of the practical lessons from from the election here. Like, what does all this mean? We, this is you know, we've gone through some of the political stuff. And I, I also think that, you know, Beto work losing by such a wide margin yeah. is another political takeaway because he's the best known, you know, gun control advocate running this cycle. Like that was a huge part of his brand and has been since he called for 
the confiscation of AR-15s and AK-47s during the presidential primary, something that he flip-flopped on a bit in this race, but ultimately held too. And he lost by 11 points. Uh, that's less than what the last Democrat to run for governor lost by, but it's way more than he lost by against Ted Cruz when he ran for Senate, because uh, he only lost by like two and a half points in that race, I believe. So I think that says a lot in and of itself. And running against Abbott, who had just signed, as you mentioned earlier, permitless gun care. So there's a huge stark contrast there in a state that had perhaps the worst mass shooting in American history, one of them at least, in, yeah. in Uvalde. Well, and, you know, Uvalde County went for Greg Abbott. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, the margin for Abbott in Uvalde County was actually higher than what he won by statewide. Um, and I think that is really important because, Stephen, I mean, as you're well aware, we saw, particularly in the last month or so before the election, um, we saw a lot of news stories about, you know, the parents in Uvalde uh, uh, rallying Beto's side, uh, you know, urging Abbott to uh, pass gun laws. The community is behind Beto. The community comes out. The community comes out. And you really were left with this impression that, uh, you know, Uvalde was going to go for uh, Robert Francis O'Rourke, right? Um, and that there was sort of this unanimity of opinion in Uvalde that, well, we may be gun owners, uh, but by God, we're in favor of these common sense restrictions. And as it turns out, no, that actually isn't what is going on in Uvalde, that those people exist, but they're not representative of the entire community. Um, and I think I, I think the media, uh, look, all of us, I think, can you know probably look in the mirror and say, well, we kind of blew that. I mean, I relied too much on the Trafalgar polls uh, and yeah, thought uh, you know, there was evidence yeah. of a red wave. So I, no, nobody got it perfect. But as long as we're doing these election uh, postmortems and we're looking in the mirror and saying, all right, well, here's where I screwed up. I want the Texas media to look in the mirror and say, here's where I screwed up. Uh, I, I assumed that because the people I were talking to in Uvalde felt like I feel about gun control, that everybody in Uvalde felt that way. Um, and the answer simply is that, that that's not the case. And, you know, one of the arguments that we saw before the election, and we'll probably hear it after, uh, you know, going forward as well. Uh, from people like Poe Murray uh, and Shannon Watts, is that if you don't support a gun ban, then you don't care about school children being murdered, right? And I think we saw a majority of Uvalde County voters say that they were in favor of a gun ban. But that doesn't mean that they don't care about what happened in their community. It doesn't mean that they don't care about what happened in some cases to their family members or to their friends' family members. It means that they don't think gun control is the answer to preventing these types of tragedies going forward. And, you know, that I think is is what's what was missing from a lot of the uh, pre-election coverage of Uvalde is that that point of view just wasn't represented. And it certainly wasn't seen as legitimate. Uh, and and I know that the gun control lobby doesn't want it to be a legitimate point of view, but. Again, as we saw at Ground Zero, one of the most horrific tragedies in this country, um, there was a rejection of the idea that we can ban our way to safety. And I think that's important. And I think that matters. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, on the other side of that coin, uh, as you mentioned briefly early, Bobert um, in Colorado would be um, somebody who has a very strong brand as a gun rights advocate. Um, although a very specific brand as, as like a 
um, hardcore MAGA. A firebrand, if you will. <laughs> yeah, right. Like she, she certainly has a, a um, associated herself very closely with like Marjorie Taylor Greene and and um, former President Trump. And so, uh, even if she holds on to win there, um, the fact that it was close in a district as red as hers is a bad sign as well for at least her, you know, I think that Beto's got a very, I don't know that a lot of people are going to be copying his brand of gun control advocacy after this, you know, that the, the right. hell yes, we're coming for your guns thing. I, I highly doubt that anyone in a remotely competitive race is going to be copying his, his approach after this, uh, you know, beat down at the polls and, you know, perhaps the same effect will happen with Bobert and her, brand of, of uh, gun rights advocacy. I don't, I don't know. It's uh, not as stark perhaps as what happened to Beto, but it's uh, certainly not the people didn't expect her to be in a close race in that district. And she is. Um, so, uh, you know, how much that's the MAGA stuff, how much that's the gun stuff or how, how much you can even separate the two at this point with her brand is, uh, I think an open question you see, like, is that going to be replicated going forward? Are people going to shy away from that approach? Right. I, you know, I, I think it probably is more the MAGA stuff than the gun stuff. Um, Adam Frisch did not run on a pro gun control platform. Uh, his campaign doesn't, his campaign website doesn't mention gun control. Uh, the only comments that I could find uh, from Frisch on guns came before the Democratic primary. Uh, and he said that he was in favor of the bipartisan uh, deal that the Senate had reached and that, uh, you know, he, he felt like there could be some common sense gun safety measures that uh, that he could work on if he was elected. Um, I have no doubt that Adam Frisch, uh, you know, if he wins this race, will be a reliable vote for gun control. But I don't think that the voters of Colorado's third congressional district all of a sudden decided, you know what, we don't like guns after all. Um, I, I think that this was a case of. Lauren Boebert was not necessarily the uh, person in Congress that they thought that they were electing, um, you know, and I, 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 I again, I'm not in that district, um, so I don't know all of the, you know, on the ground ins and outs, but um, I have a feeling that they may have a number of voters may have just felt like all of the, uh, you know, personality conflicts, all of the uh, hyperbole, all of the. Uh, uh, a political bomb throwing was just sort of a distraction. Uh, and, you know, she certainly raised her profile, but at the same time, she made a lot of enemies. And so do you want your congressperson to be that lightning rod? Um, yeah. And that district's get, red, I mean, but it's not like. And that's the thing, right? Maybe you can super, get away with it in a in an R plus 20, 20 district, yeah. but it's it may be tougher to do in a blue state like Colorado instead of a red state like Georgia for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah. Uh, in a blue state, a red district of, you know, again, I think it was supposed to be like R plus nine, mm -hmm. um, it, it, you know, that that's a little bit tougher uh, yeah. to do, I think. And so I don't think it was her attitude towards the towards the right to keep him her arms. But I think it might have been her, her overall uh, attitude when she got to Washington, D.C. that, you know, started ramping up uh, some of the criticism there in her district. And and again, this was a. You know, it was not a uniform red wave, as I said earlier. There were some states that actually saw a bit of a blue wave, and Colorado was one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, that I think had an impact. The statewide 
uh, elections had an impact on on what happened in Colorado three as well. Yeah. And maybe the lesson there is less about whether people replicate Bobert and more about whether they'll try to replicate Frisch. Uh, you know, maybe the Democrats will try to run people who are at least more moderate presenting than uh, than in those sorts of districts going forward, uh, since he had much more success than people expected. Uh, I, you know, politics is, uh, is, is, I don't know that anything's super cut and dry. You could look at uh, another example would be, um, you know, Fitzpatrick and, and um, I hope I don't, I don't know, they're probably going to butcher this, but Suler uh, uh, in, I've, I've ruined it, but um, the Democrat in Texas who voted against the assault weapons ban. Oh, um, uh, a Cuellar? Yeah, if that's okay. how you pronounce it. Hopefully. Either way, he won and Fitzpatrick won, who was mm-hmm. the Republican, one of the Republicans who voted for the assault weapons ban. And so it's not, you know, you can you can look at those and and it's obviously obviously you're not going to have reading this stuff is never going to give you a, a absolutely perfect um, everything lined up exactly to point to this single conclusion. And there were no exceptions. Uh, this election, I think, is probably a little more muddled than than uh, some other ones. But but, uh, you know, so everything can be taken with a bit of a grain of salt. Uh, I just but I, I think there are some conclusions there that we just went through that that make a lot of sense. But I want to move on to the practical side because, uh, you know, I, was, <laughs> I detoured us twice there from it. Uh, let's go back to the Oregon uh, initiative. If that does pass and goes into effect, um, well, I, actually, let me start with Congress, right? Mm-hmm. If Republicans hold the House, that practically doesn't, like all this political stuff, talk about until you know the cows come home or the uh the goats uh or the pigs or whatever <laughs> you guys have down there on, on the 40 acres but um what really matters is how this is going to play out for legislation right mm-hmm. seems like a good day for gun rights advocates then at the national level if republicans take control of the house is that simple enough conclusion yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, again, just looking at it from a pragmatic perspective, it really doesn't matter if the majority is, you know, five votes or 50, as long as the votes are there uh, to block any gun control legislation, as long as the Republican leadership, uh, you know, is, is going to uh, prevent any legislation from getting to the floor. Um, so as long as you've got control of one chamber, you know, I think you can stop the bad bills from moving forward. But it also also allows you uh, uh, you know, an oversight footprint. Um, and so, you know, now the House Oversight Committee can start uh, shining the light on what's going on with the ATF, which I think is going to be pretty important over the next couple of years. Um, you know, if they if the Republicans have control of the House, I think we've got a bit more of a watchdog uh, in Congress uh, keeping an eye on the executive branch actions than we do certainly, you know, if Democrats are in control of those uh, House committees. So that would be another benefit uh, for Republicans taking control of the House, even, you know, narrowly uh, for gun owners, because I, I do think that if we see a split Congress, then all of a sudden the executive branch becomes the go to place over the next two years uh, for the gun control movement. Whenever they want to get something done in D.C., they're going to be asking Joe Biden to try to do it via regulation rather than legislation. I will say, though, that that's what we expected to be the case when Republicans were able to get 50 seats in the Senate last time around, and we still ended up with a, a gun control bill mm-hmm. because Republican senators ended up agreeing to do one. 
Uh, although I, I don't know, do you think that uh, House Republicans tend to be more conservative on the issue, though? Uh, and you can see that in, in the votes. But uh, so maybe that's even more of a bulwark, the fact that they control. Uh, th- then there's also the fact that Republicans had 50 seats, but didn't actually control the Senate. And so they didn't set right. the agenda. So. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like it is a pretty good conclusion that gun control bills are even less likely now than uh, the, the previous Congress. Yeah. And, and again, you're right. It's never a 100 percent, you know, lock solid uh, guarantee. Um, but I do think that it is way less likely we're going to see uh, anti-gun legislation advance in Congress if Republicans take control of the House. Um, and and again, I think, you know, the added oversight that uh, that would would have would be of huge benefit um, at the state level. You know, we have seen it uh, looks like Michigan uh, is going to be, you know, yep. Democrats in complete control of state government for the first time in 40 years. Uh, I wrote a piece at Barry Arms this week cautioning Democrats not to do what Democrats in Virginia did and think that this is some sort of mandate for gun control, because otherwise the majority is going to be really short lived. But I'm a little concerned that that uh, is, in fact, what's going to happen. Uh, I believe there's a supermajority now in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, Governor Phil Scott has vetoed uh, some gun control legislation in the past, but uh, the legislature may be able to override his veto, depending on uh, what type of gun bill we're talking about. Um, I still think Democrats in Vermont will be a little bit hesitant to, you know, go full scale uh, gun ban, given the uh, state's, you know, traditional uh, recognition of the right to keep and bear arms. But I, I think they are going to want to try to move in some regard. Um right. On the pro-gun side, uh, Republicans now have a 5-2 majority on the North Carolina State Supreme Court. So I'm hopeful that maybe a a legal challenge to the uh, state's permit to purchase law uh, uh, can uh, can find some success there. Uh, We're still waiting on a couple of seats in Nebraska, but uh, it looks like there may be enough votes to block a filibuster uh, in the uh, state Senate. And that would allow for constitutional carry. Uh, to pass in, uh, in in Nebraska next year. Um, I think constitutional carry is going to be teed up in Florida. Uh, this is something that Governor Ron DeSantis talked about uh, a lot this year and said he wanted to sign constitutional carry before his term was up. I guess theoretically he's got another four years, but uh, I spoke with Ryan Petty uh, yesterday, one of our uh, Bearing Arms contributors and uh, you know obviously a Second Amendment advocate and school safety advocate there in Florida, and he thinks that constitutional carry uh, is going to be a legislative priority in Florida this year. Uh, he also talked about repealing the bill or the law that was passed after uh, Parkland that raised the age to purchase a firearm from 18 to 21. Um, he suggested that that's something that he's actually going to be lobbying lawmakers uh, to do in the next session. So, you know, I think we we will see, you know, the, the traditional anti-gun states uh, are still largely anti-gun. Um, we've got a couple of new battleground states, and I think we've got a couple of states where it's been tough to uh, to get good bills or or bad laws off the books. And I think we're going to be able to make more progress. But, um, you know, by and large, I think the the map still looks largely the same at the state level as it did before Election Day with with the exceptions that I mentioned. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think a lot of people will also fall back on the idea that the Bruin decision is going to limit what can practically be done by some of these legislatures, even if they do attempt to put in new gun bans or, or confiscation efforts or, or things of that nature. And, 
uh, to that point, actually, um, maybe we should talk a little bit about the practical fallout from the Oregon initiative. If it does end up passing, uh, how do you foresee that going? I mean, you know, a lot of people will say, well, I think FPC, you know, Firearms Policy Coalition is already threatening to sue uh, if it does pass. And, uh, you know, the, the Bruin decision would imply that at least the magazine confiscation stuff is probably not constitutional. And the permit to purchase stuff is going to be highly questionable as well. Um, but I, that it's going to take a while for those things to those legal cases to happen. Right. And so what should people be worried about the interim period if they live in Oregon? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you should. Um, there've been to the best of my knowledge, at least three County sheriffs who've come out and said, I'm, we're not enforcing the magazine ban. Um, and I'm actually in the process of contacting uh, uh, the other County sheriffs across the state to, uh, to find out what their policies are going to be. But the sheriff in uh, Klamath County uh, put out an alert this week and, and it was telling residents there, okay, like here's how I think things are likely to go. And he noted that, once this election has been certified, and let's just say that 114 uh, is approved, 30 days after the election is certified, Measure 114 takes effect. And so the magazine ban takes effect, but so too does the permit to purchase section. And there is no permit, uh, as the sheriff pointed out. There's no way for you to get a permit. Uh, there's no way for sheriffs to issue a permit. Um, and it's not likely that that system is going to be developed within 30 days. So what happens when this law takes effect and nobody can buy a gun in Oregon? Um, I would like to think that that would be a pretty clear enough violation of people's uh, fundamental right to keep and bear arms that that would uh, at least stay enforcement of this law until that permit system has been written. Uh, but hopefully throughout the entirety of the, the legal challenge, right. um, because there are fundamental rights that are implicated here. And it's not just the fact that, you know, there's going to be a database of gun owners um, or, or the tens of millions of dollars in unfunded mandates for law enforcement, which is going to play hell with uh, a rural county sheriff's uh, budgets. Um, you know, there's a built in 14 day waiting period because the law enforcement agents have 14 days to uh, to issue that permit to purchase. So, you know, if you are in fear for your life, uh, let's say you have an abusive ex. You have a stalker, there's whatever, you know, there, but there is a, a, an, an imminent danger to your life under 114 tough cookies, right? You, you, you're not, you're not able to get access to a firearm. Um, there are all kinds of, I think, really fundamental problems uh, tied within measure 114. And if the law takes effect, they're going to be readily apparent right away. Um, and this is something, you know, keep in mind that <laughs> I don't think this was approved. I don't think this really shows that there was a mandate for 114. Um, one of my friends in Oregon said you could call this more an act of God uh, than the will of the people, uh, just because of the tight margin that we're looking at here. And so if all of a sudden this, this law starts to be implemented and we see the chaos that is ensuing, I think there's going to be a lot of buyer's remorse. Uh, frankly, in Oregon. And the organizers of uh, 114, a group called the Lift Every Voice Oregon, they're already planning on a gun ban uh, for next year. They are bringing forward a ban on the sale and manufacture of so-called assault weapons that they want the legislature to pass. And they say if the legislature doesn't do it, that's going to be their next ballot initiative. Um, but, you know, again, depending on what happens over the next few months with the rollout, uh, if Measure 114 uh, is certified, 
I think I think they're going to lose a lot of face. Uh, and I think they're going to be a lot of progressives in Oregon who voted for this thinking that they were doing the right thing. Uh, and instead, they're just going to see that, you know, people are unable to uh, access uh, their right to keep their arms entirely. Uh, most of the arrests for the magazine ban are happening in Portland. Uh, there are no underlying violent offenses attached. Uh, and all of a sudden, this, is, this isn't going to look like the, you know, a giant step forward for public safety. It's going to look like a giant step backwards uh, for criminal justice reform and for, you know, individuals' rights. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, that's certainly the direction that would, would seem most likely for things to head uh, if this does pass and get certified. But, you know, that that's something I think we're absolutely going to keep at top of mind here at the reload. That's something we're going to follow closely. And I imagine it's something that you are going to follow closely as well at Bearing Arms. Can you tell people just a little bit more about how they can find uh, more of your writing? And, and uh, you also obviously have your own show that I'm a guest on occasionally. Uh, how can people find that? Yeah, absolutely. Just go to uh, bearingarms.com. That's B-E-A-R-I-N-G. Uh, I don't know why it would be B-A-R-E, but sometimes people do type that in. So no, B-E-A-R-I-N-G, uh, arms.com. Uh, and if you want to check out the Bearing Arms Cam and Company podcast, you can find us on YouTube or Rumble or all of the major podcast platforms, uh, you know, from Spotify and SoundCloud to, to all the rest. And yeah, I always love getting a chance to talk with Steven, uh, whether it's on this podcast or on uh, Cam and Company. And uh, Steven, thanks so much for your time, man. This is always, always a lot of fun. Hey, thank you. You're you're the guest. I really appreciate you making time to come on and, and look through these results with us. I think you got a lot of really insightful stuff to say and that if people like what we do here at the reload i think they'll they'll like what you do over at bearing arms you guys uh, uh also get a little more into the commentary which i think you do really well uh so that's that's one differentiator between the the two publications and one reason why somebody might want to subscribe to both of them so make sure you head over and check it out today but uh we're gonna head to our news update uh, over with uh, jake fogelman now all right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer joined or Jake Fogelman, joined as always by Reload founder Steve Gutowski. Did you forget who you were for a second? <laughs> Election week has just fried my brain. <laughs> Not all cylinders are firing clearly. Yeah, same here. We still don't have all the results. It's Friday uh, when we're recording this. And uh, some of these states need to uh, you know, reform their system so we can get these results a little faster. It's it's honestly ridiculous, but uh, nothing new either, unfortunately. That's how it's been for a lot of these states for a yeah. long time. Um, but yeah, the, that's what we're, we talked about with Cam this week. So uh, we got a little bit of uh, additional news, additional gun news. That's not just about the election. The election is the big thing this week, of course, and it's going to matter a lot. And we're going to talk a lot more about it moving forward. I think you're going to have another members piece this week. Um, which will go live the same time as, as this recording is released to our members who get the podcast a day early, of course, uh, for anyone who wasn't aware. Uh, but, but yeah, we, we have some other news to talk about first, right? Yeah, the, we had a, a big, big court decision in the New York, the ongoing saga of the New York gun carry regime. That seems like, you know, every few weeks there's more big news. Um, but you wrote a piece about actually a, a pretty major ruling uh, in the case where a injunction was finally issued. If you want to tell us a little bit about, you know, what happened there. Yeah, that's right. The Northern District case, this was Judge uh, Sotheby 
who we've uh, talked about a number of times in the past, because uh, that case has been particularly interesting uh, in in this whole fight over New York's new gun carry law, their response to the Supreme Court striking down their old gun carry law. Uh, and now, of course, it's been uh, preliminary and it's been enjoined. There's a preliminary injunction issued against the law by Judge Sidibe, which blocks most of the controversial provisions, not every single one, but it does block the vast majority of them. Um, uh, for instance, a lot of the requirements attached to obtaining a permit were enjoined. So uh, you don't have to give your the information, your, your family members information to the police, which was a requirement. You don't have to turn over your social media accounts. Um, you don't have to uh, prove that you have a good moral character, or at least um, uh, the state can't deny you a permit based on their subjective judgment that you don't have a good moral character, uh, because that the, he found that that was basically identical to the uh, good reason clause that the Supreme Court struck down in their uh, ruling in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. So uh, the bunch of the requirements for how you obtain a permit are now uh, blocked. And uh, and then he blocked a number of the sensitive places restrictions that the state tried to put in place. Um, so, for instance... Um, I mean, it's quite, it's a pretty long list uh, because New York had kind of tried to ban gun carry almost everywhere in the state, right? Uh, but he blocked the ones that pertain to restaurants that serve alcohol. So this is even if you're not drinking any alcohol, they barred you from carrying in a restaurant that serves alcohol, uh, which actually is not a completely unique provision for New York. That one which and this so this might actually have some relevance in other states where that's they have that same policy. Um, some states do prevent you from going into. Uh, there's a couple different uh, approaches to that. Like Virginia, where I am, you can carry in a place that serves alcohol. You just can't drink alcohol, obviously, um, while you're carrying. But there are states that have this same policy, and then there's some that have a policy against carrying in places where their revenue is more than 50% from alcohol, which is meant to obviously target like bars and things. Um, so it'd be interesting to see if that spreads to other restrictions in other states that have less restrictive gun laws. But uh, also there was a provision against carrying in a theater, at protests, places of worship. Uh, even if you know, places of worship was a total ban, even if the, church or synagogue wanted to allow you to carry that you couldn't um banquet halls conference centers parks uh areas at airports or clinics that are before security uh you know a lot of states will allow you to carry as up to the security area at an airport if you have a permit again these are all things that apply to people who have permits who've gone through the process to get a permit they still would have been off limits in places like this and then uh, also public buses. However, uh, oh, and one of the bigger ones, one of the ones with the most consequential implications were was this provision that blocked people from 
by default from carrying on private property, even at businesses that are open to the public. So it kind of uh, flipped everything on its head as far as the way most states handle this, because in every other state, essentially, uh, you can't you can carry as long as there is not a sign posted that says you can't carry. But New York made it so that you cannot carry anywhere unless there's a sign posted that says you can carry. And uh, Sotheby struck that one down as well. Um, he did up he did uphold a number of provisions, or at least not block a number of provisions, even some that he had previously blocked. So the 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 entire area of Times Square being off limits to loosely gun defined, loosely defined. Yeah, loosely area. this uh, vague like <laughs> they made Times Square this giant section um, around the intersection that everybody knows as Times Square. Uh, off limits and uh, this injunction doesn't block that uh, same for the subway even though it blocks uh, the gun-free zone on public buses it doesn't do so for the subway system um, and these largely came down to lack of standing so to be has been a real stickler for standing and so uh, he determined in this ruling that the plaintiffs didn't have standing for, for a couple of these things. He, he actually had a couple footnotes in those areas where he, he essentially said he would block these provisions if the plaintiffs could prove standing. So, um, essentially it seems like they probably have to bring another lawsuit, uh, for each of those other provisions, the couple that are left over, uh, after this. So, um, yeah, ultimately, it's a pretty big win for uh, gun rights advocates. This was a case from Gun Owners of America, um, and they've had a long go of it because initially, sort of, be tossed the in their first lawsuit altogether over lack of standing because he didn't like the way that they had pleaded it and how their uh, plaintiffs had given answers and questioning. So uh, they've had they had to refile the case uh, and then. They went through the um, the temporary restraining order, which was which they got, but was stayed. And then now they're on. They got this preliminary injunction, which is not stayed. That's another yeah. key point. This this went into effect immediately, and New York has been barred from enforcing these things, uh, at least until perhaps the Second Circuit intervenes and they they file a, uh, an appeal. Right, and and I have seen they have New York has since filed the notice of appeal with the Second Circuit in this case. But like you said, the key difference here is this time Sotheby said this is not stayed pending appeal. So this injunction will take effect. So that's a big, bigger win for, uh, I think, gun rights advocates in New York, because as you pointed out with the last TRO, he delayed it three days and then New York immediately appealed. And then the Second Circuit uh, put another stay on it without actually addressing the appeal. And it's just been sort of hanging in limbo. <laughs> so not yeah. much not much of a emergency relief order there if it's just going to be stayed while judges sit on it for a while. But as you pointed out, big difference here, the injunction actually goes into effect and it will stay in effect until otherwise noted by an appeals court. And we, you would expect that the Second Circuit will put a stay on it probably and, and yeah. accept this case at some point here in the near future. So you know, that's something to keep in mind. This isn't the, the fight's not over here for either side. Uh, it, uh, you know, the the attorney general gave us comment for the story, just said that they're looking at their options for moving forward. And there's no 
reason to think that they're not going to fight this up at the Second Circuit. Um, although I feel even if they win in the Second Circuit, it'd be hard for me to imagine the Supreme Court not taking this case because it directly contradicts what they ruled in Bruin. Right. So I think they'd be pretty eager to step in uh, and, and do something if if this law did make it through scrutiny at the Second Circuit, um, which which we'll certainly be watching for and and reporting on for all of you guys. But um, there's another question at play here when it comes to the stay and enforcement of this injunction. And that has to do with New York City, and the, which is in the Southern District in New York. So you've got this is a case in the Northern District. Then there's a case in the Western District, which also uh, which dealt specifically with the places of worship prohibition. I believe that's a Second Amendment Foundation case. And that that uh, the, the judge there put a temporary restraining order in place uh, basically uh, immediately. And uh, so New York, with no stay, which means New York's been enjoined from enforcing that part of the provision. But New York has taken a very um, a specific approach to these rulings and is really only abiding by them in the specific districts where they've been issued. So the Southern District of New York, uh, where there is also a lawsuit against the places of worship prohibition that's filed by um, a Jewish group down there, they have been enforcing this law uh, despite those uh, other orders from the Northern and Western District. Uh, and so the Southern District judge has not, he denied it a temporary restraining order request and hasn't moved very quickly on the uh, preliminary injunction hearing. So that one is still in limbo and it's still not clear. And the Attorney General's office did not answer my question when I asked whether they would uh, continue to enforce this law outside of the Northern District. But in court, they've argued that they that they're entitled to do that. So right. uh, this ruling may not have an effect on the entirety of New York State. Yeah. Um, so we'll we'll have to see. I think that's an important that, important thing to bring up for gun rights advocates who are, I think, getting probably rightly so excited about what the Bruin decision means for legal challenges to gun laws uh, because they see a lot of temporary restraining orders being issued, sometimes preliminary injunctions being issued. But this strategy, I think, demonstrates a way that governments who want to do everything in their power to uphold these laws can create several roadblocks. Even if you're successful in one court, they'll literally carve up districts of the state where we say, OK, it was struck down in this district, but we're going to continue to enforce it in an, a different district where there's also litigation pending. And it just so happens that that district is the most populous area of the state. So it affects the most people. Uh, New York City's in that district there. So even, you know, even things that are uh, victories in court, like an injunction, uh, isn't so much a victory for the rest of the state. Yeah, you know, certainly they're going to take a maximalist approach to uh, opposing these rulings and trying to enforce their laws. Uh, at least that seems to be what they're doing now. And and they're, frankly, they're getting some help from some of these judges because the Southern District judge he appears to be dragging his feet on all of this. Uh, he seems as though he doesn't want to enjoin this law. 
regardless of what these other two judges have done. And he also doesn't want to uh, move quickly so that the plaintiffs can appeal his decisions. That's at least what the plaintiffs are claiming in that that uh, Southern District case. You know, they, they sent a letter. We, we wrote about this last week, but they sent a letter to the judge um, after the FBI had issued a warning against Jewish worshipers in New Jersey, just across the river from where uh, a lot of these plaintiffs live and worship uh, about anti-Semitic threats that had um, come to the FBI's attention and were considered to be very credible. And, um, you know, so they, they were urging the judge to act so that they could carry uh, firearms legally with, you know, licensed um, uh, into their synagogues to protect themselves in case of an attack, which obviously there has been quite a lot of anti-Semitic violence in New York City over the last couple of years. Um, it's an ongoing problem uh, for the city, and it's um, it's only gotten worse in, in the last couple of years. And you've seen the rise of, obviously, uh, anti-Semitic statements from uh, celebrities like Kanye West and Kyrie Irving. And, and so, you know, it's obviously it's obvious why these uh, these plaintiffs have a concern for their safety and immediate concern. And uh, it's unfortunate to see what amount to delaying tactics from the Southern district judge. It's not something unexpected though, is, is what I would say. Like, like you're talking about here, there's, there's, there are other ways to oppose Supreme court edicts rather than just ignoring them or, or flouting them, like going directly in contradiction to what, uh, they've ordered. I mean, New York is doing that with their <laughs> yeah, law, gonna certainly. <laughs> but uh, the sort of savvier way of of trying to mitigate what the effects of Bruin are going to be is this delaying tactic or or minimization in rulings or you know you, you can rule that as applied this law is uh, unconstitutional, but that not rule on whether the law itself is unconstitutional. There's a lot of ways you can stretch out hearings, stretch out cases. I mean, this is what you're seeing in the Southern District, right? Yeah. The Southern District case was filed before the Western District case. But the Western District case already got to a temporary restraining order being issued and a preliminary injunction hearing happening uh, before before either of those things happen in the, the Southern District case. And the Southern District judge is asking for all sorts of additional um, witness testimony. And there's a whole list of complaints that the the plaintiffs have about the, how the proceedings have gone. But, it, you know, I think their ultimate complaint is that he's he's sort of uh, slow walking this lawsuit, which seems to be fairly legitimate complaint based on how the other federal judges have handled almost identical cases. And in fact, the Sidibe cases is a much more intensive case that that ruling is 184 pages long right. because it deals with the almost the entirety of that law, not just the places of worship prohibition. So he moved that case along faster than the Southern District judge has, and he had a lot more to deal with. So, uh, you know, th this is a really good example, I think, of that tactic of delay and minimization that you're likely to see other uh, courts who maybe don't like the Bruin ruling uh, 
undertake. Although, you know, I, I will say I expected more of this than what we've gotten so sure. far, because there have been a, a number of, you know, Obama and Biden appointee federal judges who have even or even, you know, Bush appointees or whatever, who've, who've vocally talked about how they don't like the Bruin ruling, but they've nonetheless abided by it and they haven't tried to really, um, you know, put in these delaying tactics or or, you know, use minimization uh, in their rulings to uh, avoid the inevitable con conclusion of that Bruin would have to withdraw in the case. So um, it's a little rarer than what I've was expecting, but it, but it's, I think it's clearly happening in this situation here. Sure. Like you said, we're also going to have to see how the appeals court decides to handle it. I think that'll be a big tell as well. So, and, uh, of course, the only, yeah. one of the only places you can do that is is the reload, where we're going to be staying on top of that. Absolutely, and you know we have we actually have seen this a little bit from the appeals courts out in the Ninth Circuit already because they sent yeah. some of these some of those uh, cases that got uh, GVR granted, vacated, and remanded by the Supreme Court have been sent back down to yeah. uh, you know the the lower court judges that had already found the laws unconstitutional. Um, just to sort of redo the case again, and you're going to get the same basic ruling, but it'll take a while. And so that's probably another example of this delay tactic. Yeah. But like you point. said, it's something we are going to keep on top of. Uh, and if you want to follow along, you can head over to reload.com, sign up for our free newsletter. We won't flood your inbox with a bunch of uh, meaningless emails. You get one email uh, from the free newsletter every Friday. It'll give you what's going on with guns in America from a sober, serious point of view. Uh, and then if you want a little more, if you want to go in depth, you want more analysis of, of what's happening, you can buy a membership and you'll get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and even exclusive stories that you won't find anywhere else. And you'll be helping support the publication because we re rely 100% on the funding of our members to make this all possible. You'll also get access to this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment. If you're already a member and you want to come on the show, just reply to your Sunday members newsletter and we'd love to have you on and hear from you. Always one of my favorite segments, but that's all we've got for this week. So we will see you guys again next week.